0: Hi there and welcome back to the next episode of How Good It Is, a weekly podcast that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Call and I'm gonna ruin everything today. Don't forget about the website and the Twitter thing and of course the Facebook page. That's over at facebook.com slash how good it is pod. Let me offer up some uh, Christmas music trivia for ye. Between 1963 and 1969, the Beatles recorded seven Christmas messages that were sent on uh, flexi discs to the members of their fan club. They contained skits and uh, some spoken messages and Christmas carols and some general goofing around. And if you're a Beatle fan, you've probably heard these recordings in one form or another. But here's the question. Whose idea was it for the Beatles to record the Christmas messages? As usual, I'll have the answer near the end of the show. So, it's the holiday season, which means radio stations everywhere are pouring on the holiday tunes, and some of them have even gone all Christmas all the time, which wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing if they could manage to open up the playlist a little bit. After all, the Christmas song canon is still relatively small, and it's not a bad thing to hear several different renditions of each song. But. That's the old guy in me talking, and it's not what this episode is about. What it is about, however, is that there are a bunch of Christmas songs that aren't really about Christmas at all. But they've become so linked to the holiday that as soon as you hear it, you go, oh, Christmas song. So, we're going to take a look at just a few of the songs that have been associated with Christmas that aren't really Christmas songs. This first one was a listener request, and I'm so sorry. Look, I tried to... could, and I just couldn't find your name again but I did tell this person I'd intended to talk about the song and that made them happy but maybe not in this context whams last Christmas isn't so much about Christmas as it is about a failed relationship it's just that Christmas time is when the whole thing came unraveled so those two words last Christmas is the only thing that mentions Christmas Andrew Ridgely says that he and George Michael had just eaten at George's parents' house and they were just hanging out watching TV, when George went upstairs and stayed there for about an hour. When he came back down, he had the opening and the chorus for the song. Now this is kind of interesting, in the US the song didn't chart at all when it was first released because it was a promotional single that wasn't commercially available. In the UK, however, it was huge and it remains so with two million sales and counting. But it only got to number 2 when it was released in 1984 because the band-aid track Do They Know It's Christmas kept it out of the top spot. So Last Christmas is THE biggest selling single in the UK not to reach number 1 there. And I should mention that like Do They Know It's Christmas, the royalties from Last Christmas were donated to help with the famine in Ethiopia. Meanwhile, here in the U.S., the record finally did reach the Billboard Hot 100 just a couple of years ago, about two weeks after George Michael's death on Christmas Day in 2016. An effort in the U.K. to get it to number one that same year failed, and it once again peaked at number two. And it finally cracked the Billboard Top 40 during the week of December 15, 2018, when it went to number 34. And for the week of December 22, 2018, it climbed to number 31. The video, part of which was shot in Switzerland, has cameo appearances from their backup singers Pepsi and Shirley, and you also very briefly see Shirley's boyfriend Martin Kemp. Kemp, if you didn't know, is the bass player from Spandau Ballet. Oh, and there's a movie based on the song that's in the works, starring Emma Thompson, Amelia Clark, and Henry Golding. It's set for release in 2019, and will feature that song, plus a few others, by George Michael. Merry Christmas, ladies. Merry Christmas, Mr. Buble. Are you ready to sing a little jingle bells? Yes. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Jingle bells is probably oh, one, one of the most common American songs in the sing. world. It was written in 1857, and it was originally published as one horse Ho- open. Oh, wow, one horse I open sleigh. sleigh, but it really wasn't meant to be a Christmas song. So far as music historians can tell, and yes, music historian is a thing. It was intended to be a Thanksgiving song about riding your sleigh through the snow where a couple of different adventures would take place, none of which have anything to do with Christmas. Now, everybody knows the first verse, and even most recorded versions these days use only the first verse and maybe a variation on it in repetition, but the song actually has four verses. The second verse is about the narrator taking a sleigh ride with a young lady named Fanny Bright and losing control of the sleigh that crash into a snowbank. The third verse, which uh, takes place at a different time, the narrator falls into the snow, and another rider laughs at him as he passes by. And in the fourth verse, the narrator is advising a friend that he can use a sleigh and a fast horse to pick up girls. Incidentally, nowadays we hear the phrase jingle bells, and we think of a specific kind of bell used on sleighs, which, by the way, are called sleigh bells. But in the song, it's more of a command, so it's not so much, hey, we're listening to jingle bells, as it is, You need to jingle those sleigh bells so that people hear us coming. Okay, one more thing before I move on. On December 16th, 1965, Gemini 6 and Gemini 7 spacecraft had just completed the first ever rendezvous by two spacecraft. Gemini 6 commander Walter Schirra breaks out a small harmonica and plays the first song that was ever broadcast by humans from outer space. If you listen to the ex- entire exchange, and I'll have it available at the website, you'll see that Shira is basically setting up Santa's sleigh as a UFO sighting. Speaking of sleighs, Leroy Anderson wrote Sleigh Ride in 1946 as an instrumental piece. What's more, he started writing it in the month of July during a heat wave in Woodbury, Connecticut, where he, his wife, and his 18-month-old daughter were spending the summer. The project stalled out for a bit, so he didn't finish it until February of 1948. The first recording was done by Arthur Fiedler and the Boston Pops Orchestra, and in fact it's become one of their signature tunes. Uh, They recorded it in May of 1948, and Anderson himself recorded it in 1950. That's what you're listening to now, and for my money, it's the definitive recording of this song around the same time that anderson was recording it mitchell parish added lyrics to the song and the Andrews sisters were the first to sing it but none of parish's lyrics have anything to do with christmas anderson was simply trying to evoke a winter scene parish followed suit with basically another set of lyrics involving a one-horse open sleigh but the bottom line is that the song doesn't mention the holiday at all despite all that between 2009 and 2012 this was the song most played by American radio stations during the holiday season. All oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire, it's so delightful. And since we've no place to go... Let it, snow, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Let it snow was written by Sammy Kahn and Julie Stein in 1945, and it was first recorded by Vaughn Monroe. But perhaps the best-known version is this one by Dean Martin, which I think largely because it's so reflective of his laid-back, swingin', whatever happens, happens style. According to the people who chart these things, though, the most popular version on the radio is by Harry Connick Jr. Sorry, Harry, Dean's got your beat on this one. But once again, the song has nothing to do with Christmas. If you really hold me tight. According to Sammy Kahn, Let It Snow was also written during a heat wave, but they were in uh, Hollywood, California at the time, not Connecticut. Kahn says that he suggested to Stein that they go to the beach to cool off, but Stein said, why don't we stay here and write a winter song? Kahn went to the typewriter and they got the first few lines out. In that same interview, Kahn explained that there were three Let It Snows rather than two or four because three is lyric. But if you take a look at those lyrics, they're all about a couple that snowed in, and they have to make the best of it. Of course, lots of artists have done the song, but a couple that stand out, besides the two I've already mentioned, would be Rod Stewart, who released a version in 2012 that went to number one on the Adult Contemporary Chart, and that was his first visit to the Billboard charts since 1993. Stewart's position, uh, Stewart's version rather, stayed at that position for five weeks, which ties the record for a holiday song at that position with Michael Bublé's version of All I Want for Christmas Is You. The other version that's worth noting is this version by Carly Simon from 2005, which basically does a role reversal and tells it from the host viewpoint rather than the guests. Jolly happy soul With a corncob pipe and a button nose and two eyes made out of coal. Frosty the Snowman was written in 1950 specifically for Gene Autry to be a follow-up to his earlier hit from the previous year, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. It was that same year that Jimmy Durante recorded his own version, and while both versions peaked at number seven on the charts, it's Durante's version that gets more attention these days, almost certainly because of the Rankin-Bass cartoon that set up Durante as the story's narrator. However, there is another cartoon version that was put together by United Productions of America in 1950. It's only three minutes long, and it uses a different version of the song, but it's been airing in the Chicago area every single year since 1955. At any rate, it's a story about a magic hat that brings a snowman to life, and he dances and plays with children, and eventually the sun makes him run to the village until the local police officer gets him to stop. Well, briefly, anyway. And that's about it. Once again, there's zero mention of Christmas, And the song disappears long before the winter weather does. Now, I had a lot of fun doing this, and I don't want you to get the idea that I don't like any of these songs. In fact, I do. This was me just doing a lot of tri- uh, quick trivia hits on a few songs that don't really have enough background to do an entire show. I mean, I, I could do a full-scale rant on how My Favorite Things is not, not, not a Christmas song. In fact, it's not even a winter song, and musicians should just cut it out already. But I know I'm not going to get anywhere with that argument, so let's just all relax and enjoy the tunes, right? Okay, it's time to answer the Christmas music trivia question. Back on page two, I asked whose idea it was to have the Beatles record holiday messages for the fan clubs. Everywhere it's Christmas, everywhere it's all. London, hey, hey, you. And Tokyo, Hong Kong. The answer is Tony Barrow, who was their publicist and who gets credit for writing and producing the first few of them. Now, because the fans' letters weren't being responded to in a timely manner just out of the sheer volume of the mail coming in, Barrow came up with the recordings as a means of appeasing the members of the fan club. But, as it happens, the fan club recordings were quite UK-centric, as the US fans didn't get the 1963 recording until 1964, and they got no recording at all for the following three years. Everyone got copies of the 1968 and 69 editions, but in those cases, the messages were recorded separately and then edited together by Kenny Everett. And that is it for this edition of How Good It Is. Hey, I know that most podcasts will say something at this point about asking for a rating, and i am been guilty of that too, but instead, I'm going to thank you for your support and just ask you to share the show with somebody else if you're enjoying it, okay? And of course, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com, or you can follow the show at on Twitter at How Pod. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod, or... You can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where I sometimes throw in a few extra goodies for you. Next time, we're going to find out how good it is to get the rest of the Shel Silverstein story. Finally, finally. Thanks, as usual, to Podcast Republic for listing how good it is as a featured show, and thank you again for listening. I will talk to you next time.